0: Well, like I said earlier, my name is Jeremy, and I'm the campus pastor here for this campus of Mount Perry North, and we're so glad that you're here. Um, I'm about to tell you a story, and I don't want you to think less of me. Um, that's probably not possible for some of you. You already think less of me, but um, I've been in a couple of fights in my life. Now, I know looking at me, you assume I got I got whipped, but I actually won both of them. Um, when I was in the eighth grade, Uh, I was in science class and that day in science class, we had a substitute teacher and, uh, you know, you know, I don't know if you're a teacher, you know how the class acts when there's a sub there. And, and I was one of those kids and thank the Lord redeemed me out of that. But, um, there was a sub in science class that day and I was sitting at a table. We had these like big, long rectangular tables in that science class, very similar to our art room over here that we use for one of our, um, our children's environments. And, uh, and so we were sitting at a table, there's like four or six of us. And here was the issue. I knew that those guys at that table were cool, and I thought if I sat at that table by proxy, that made me cool. Okay, So I'm sitting at this table, and across the room is a guy who I knew was not nearly as cool as the guys at this table, nor me, because I'm now sitting with these cool guys. So one of the guys at the table I was sitting at looked across the room at the guy who was not so cool. And he decided to make you know something funny happen here. So he picks up this little pencil that he's been like whittling away. I don't know if he's making something that you could sell at Cracker Barrel or something. But he's whittling away at this pencil. And it's like woodwork. It's really nice. And really it wasn't. It was pointy on both ends. So he picks it up. And he just kind of flings it across the room. Now, in hindsight, I see the danger in this. In the moment, it was hilarious. So he takes it, flips it across the room, and it kind of hits the guy at the table in the shoulder. I assume, in, in, in my mind's eye, it kind of stuck in his shoulder, but I don't think it did. But it hits him in the shoulder, bounces off. Now, here's what happened. Because these guys were so cool, I don't know if you've ever been in an experience like this. If you were the cool guy, you never did this. But the guy that's not as cool at the table, wanting to seem as cool as the guys at the table, wants to laugh thinking that everybody else will laugh. Everybody else plays it cool. You start laughing, now you're the oddball. So I'm laughing like it's the funniest thing that's ever happened in the history of the universe. Okay? Everybody else at the table is like acting like they're the greatest student ever working on their science project here. And the guy that gets hit by the pencil looks up and he sees me. And guess what? I'm the guy laughing. Nobody else at the table is laughing. I'm laughing. So what does he assume? I threw the pencil. So he takes the pencil. And where the guy at my table had, with great respect, thrown it with a lot of arc on it so that it wouldn't stick in his shoulder. The guy at the other table, who's now ticked off, takes it and flings it at my table. Now, thankfully, it didn't hit me because it's all fun and games until somebody gets an eye put out. But it bounced on the table and hit me in the chest. So now I'm ticked off, right? Because I didn't do it before. I'm just laughing at the cool guys wanting to be cool. So I pick up the pencil, right? Very mature for eighth grade. I get this. I pick up the pencil. The science substitute at this point should – I guess he was taking a nap. I have no idea how this guy missed anything we were doing. But I pick up the pencil. Now I throw it across the room. I've got a pretty good arm, and so I fling it on a pretty straight line right at him, and again it hits him. Okay, So I kind of expected that he would stand up and and, and say something, tell on me, flip something, I don't know what. But he kept his composure, didn't do anything, didn't say anything. About two minutes later, he picks up his assignment, he goes and he walks over and sits it on the substitute's desk. But instead of going straight back to his chair, he takes the long way around the classroom back to his chair. And I kind of lost sight of him for a moment. It was like, you know, something in the corner of my eye, and I got distracted, and I lost sight of him for a moment. The next thing I know, I'm getting punched in the back of the head, okay? First time I'd ever been punched in my life, eighth grade. I don't know how I lasted that long. So I get punched in the back of the head, but I was really pleased with my response because here's what I did, like some kind of kung fu movie. I'm sitting still in a chair. I get punched. My head moves forward, but in one single motion without a single lesson in any type of karate or martial arts at all, I turn around in a single circular motion and land a square punch right in his jaw. At least the way I remember it. It was fluid, it was nice. I landed a punch, and I don't know if he fell out, or if I knocked him out, or if I fell back from the weight of the... I'm not sure, but somehow there was some separation, and he came slapping at me with an open hand, mind you. And I remember thinking, close your fist, dude, right? Right? But he comes at me like this, and before he ever kind of, he just barely glances it off of my cheek. Sorry about hitting the mic there, guys. And, and so he glances off the, and by that point, the substitute has woken up from his nap, and he's in the middle of us, and some of the guys are separating us, and we get marched to the principal's office. The only time I ever really got in trouble in school, I was suspended for three days. It broke my mother's heart. A couple months later, as if I didn't learn my, own, my lesson there, My parents were out of town. So I don't know if it was authority issues. my substitute, now my parents are out of town. Me and my brother, I've got a younger brother, he's two years younger than me, we ride the bus home from school on this Friday. My parents are already out of town, and there was like a college girl that was from our church who was going to come and just kind of stay at our house for the weekend because we couldn't drive yet. So she's coming, but she's not there yet. So we get off the bus, we go to the door, we unlock the door, and I don't even remember how it started, but there was some conversation about who was going to get to choose where we ate that night, because... You know, we, there's a there's a babysitter coming, or whatever you want to call them at that age of life, and she's coming, and so we're going to eat out, and we were trying to decide who was going to choose what we ate that night. And I don't know. I mean, I've got kids now, but I'm not sure how that conversation translates into a fight. But I mean, it was more than just no, I want Wendy's, no, I want Pizza Hut, no, you're an idiot. I mean, somehow it escalated quickly. And I don't remember who threw the first punch, but I remember us, like, hugging for a long time, like in a wrestle move or something. And neither one of us could get our arms back to punch because we were just so, like, holding on tightly. So then at some point, one of us shoves the other one back, and I remember hitting him in the face and bloodying his nose. But now that I think back about it, he had a lot of nosebleeds as a kid, so I don't know if I was even responsible for that or if it was just allergy season and he sneezed. I don't know. But I remember that fight. And the best I can tell, those were the only two fist fights, kind of physical altercations I was ever in, in my whole life. Now, I've been in other conflicts. I've been in other verbal spats or whatever. But I'm not a fighter, right? And I know now that you look at me, you can tell. I'm not a fighter. I mean, I'm not afraid of conflict. I will sit down and we will talk through any kind of conflict that you and I may have with one another. But I mean, even in our marriage, Corey would tell you, like, if we're in a, you know, in an adult discussion about something that's happened and that, I, you know, that I've done or that it was a misunderstanding or a breakdown in communication or whatever, I don't like to fight. And so I'll just apologize just to end the argument, you know. And she's caught on to my trick because we'll have, be having the conversation and finally I'll just start I'll be like, listen, okay, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. She's caught on because now she'll say, what are you sorry for? <laughs> um for whatever it is that's between us, you know. I'm assuming I've done something here. and So I'll just apologize. I just want to end the argument. I just, I just, I'm not a fighter. But in life, we know that we have opposition. We know that there's not, not everybody agrees with us. Not everybody we're going to get along with. There's going to be people that disagree with us. There's going to be people that There are people in your life, and and if you don't know anybody like this, you're probably this person. There are going to be people that just do things to pick a fight. I mean, they just kind of get energy out of being in some type of altercation. They want there to be tension and drama, and they just kind of thrive in that environment. I am not like that. And and so I just, I, I know when I'm in life, I know there are people that are wanting to pick a fight. My dad gave me an illustration, and we use it in our household all the time. When somebody does something or says something that you know they're trying to pick a fight, or you know it's not even worth your time to respond. We were a baseball family. We still are now, even in our house. And so we would call that a pitch in the dirt. What we would call that, the reason we would call that is because you don't swing at a pitch in the dirt. A pitch in the dirt is a pitch too low. It's not going to be a strike if you don't swing. So you just let it go by. And so when someone would say something that... You know, I shouldn't have responded to him. my dad and said, why'd you even say something back? That's a pitch in the dirt, right? And so, you know, recently, Corey and I have been talking about a situation with somebody that we knew. And, and, and somebody responded and it was like, oh, that was a pitch in the dirt. Why did they even respond, right? But in life, there's opposition, there's fighting, there's people that kind of encounter us and they want to get us into some type of argument. And we know that. And so really, ultimately, what it comes down to is how do we respond? How do we respond to conflict? How do we respond to fight? How do we respond to something? Because really, psychologists and sociologists would tell us that there's one of two responses, right? Fight or flight. That you're either going to fight, you're going to, you know, if somebody comes at you, you're going to fight or you're going to run away. And I think there's probably a third in there somewhere. There's probably some kind of hybrid. You would fight in certain situations, but you're not looking for a fight, so you're going to run away or step back if there's ever any specific altercation that doesn't require you to get involved. The conflict is a huge part of life, and so today we're going to talk a little bit about that. We are concluding our series on Nehemiah. Nehemiah's in the Old Testament. He's a guy, if you've been with us for any length of time these last couple weeks, that was the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes, and he gets some bad news about his people, the Jews. That the walls in Jerusalem, the city of God, where the people of God are, are living, the walls have come down and there's incredible disarray among the people. And so over the last few weeks we've talked about that Nehemiah became a person of influence. He created change at large because he allowed that intersecting place in his life where his natural passion and burden intersected with the place that God had positioned him. He had a burden for his people and God had positioned him working for the king, and so he had a a primary place here where he could go and do something. We talked about the courage that it takes to be a person of influence, to obey and to do the right thing in every situation no matter what. We saw that in conversations with Nehemiah. We also talked about the team, the group of people, the, the sense of community that's required to really accomplish something great for the Lord. And last week we talked about being a person of integrity, that if you want to be a person of influence, you have to be a person of integrity. People have to know that they can trust you. Before they'll actually trust you to influence who they are. And so today we're going to conclude, and we're actually going to drop back in the story a little bit to chapter 4. So if you've got your Bibles, you can flip with me there. If you don't have a Bible today, um, but you got a smartphone, you can use one of your Bible apps if you're able to get uh, internet in this room, which is uh, spotty at best. Um, if not, those things that we're going to read will be up on the screen. Nehemiah chapter 4, we're not going to read the entire chapter like we did last week in, uh, in chapter 13. But Nehemiah chapter 4, let's read a little bit about some opposition. Beginning in verse 1. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, this is Nehemiah. So anytime you see we, I, that kind of thing, this is Nehemiah talk. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones." Hear us. Now, this is Nehemiah praying to God now in verse 4 in response to what they've heard about their enemies. It says, Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half of its height. For the people worked with all of their heart. Now, Sanballat and Tobiah are two guys that we've talked about over the last few weeks. They are guys that are kind of close to the Israelites in Jerusalem, but they are Ammonite and Moabite rulers in this community, in this area of of, of countryside. And so they are really, um, they're close enough to seem like they're friendly. But what we realize in this is that their motivation is not the same as Nehemiah's, nor is it the same of the kind of the pure Jews who are really wanting to rebuild the walls and kind of create this sense of community again among God's people. Every time we read about this effort to, to do something great, Sambalot and Tobiah and other Ammonite and Moabite rulers or people, they're despising that. They're kind of attacking that idea. And so we're reading here that when they hear about this rebuilding effort, which is really kind of started in, in chapter 3, um, they hear about this, they, they're, they're upset about it, and they start to mock and, and, and make fun of and accuse the Jews there and their efforts to say, listen, what are you going to do? The wall is rubble. How are you going to take rubble and turn it back into a wall? Not only that, but, you know, even if you rebuild it, a fox could jump up on top of it and it would be so weak that if the fox was walking around on top of it, the whole thing would crumble. And so they're making fun of these people because remember, if you do, chapter 3 told us that the people rebuilding the wall were not builders primarily. These were not people who were skilled builders. And so they're probably a little bit insecure about their efforts. These were perfume makers, These were goldsmiths. But Nehemiah walked up and said, I want you to rebuild this part of the wall. They were priests. I want you to go rebuild that gate. And so interestingly, I think these these, these people in opposition were kind of needling into the insecurities that existed in those who were rebuilding the wall. And I will say to you, and you've already experienced this, I'm sure, the people that oppose you will find that place that you are most insecure, and they will press into that. Those people that are going to oppose your efforts, they're not going to attack your strengths going to attack your weaknesses. They're going to come after those places that you're a little bit insecure about your own ability to accomplish whatever it is that God is calling you to be. I'll give you a perfect example, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit. But if, man, you come from a family where nobody has been able to stay married long term, the enemy is going to try to convince you that your marriage can't last. You come from a place where, you know, your dad, he was out of work all the time, and You've hit some hard paths in your job searches, and you, you can't seem to keep a job. And you, when they're laying somebody off and you get work, you just know it's going to be you. And, and the enemy or, or those around you who are in opposition to you, they begin to kind of press into those insecurities and say, there's, there's probably something wrong with you. There's probably something wrong with your family, and now there's something wrong with you. And so the enemy's going to press into those insecurities because I believe that's what the enemies were doing here to the people of God. I'm saying, You're not builders. You're trying to build a wall that's going to last. You're perfume makers and goldsmiths. You're a ruler. You're priests. priest. How are you going to build a wall that would even stand against a fox that's walking across the top of this thing? And so Nehemiah, he, he doesn't even, at least recorded here, he doesn't even respond to those accusers and those who are opposing. He just prays. We read this in chapter 1 and again in chapter 2. But Nehemiah was a man of prayer. And every time it seems that he came to a moment where he needed wisdom, He needed strength. He needed to accomplish something that God was calling to return to God. And if I'm honest, sometimes that's not my initial response. I think Pastor Mark talked about that um, early, early in in this calendar year when he was last with us. But he talked about, you know, my initial response is not always prayer. Sometimes my initial response is anger. Sometimes my initial response is to lash out. Sometimes it's bitterness. Sometimes it's unforgiveness. Sometimes it's to internalize all that. It just turns into something ugly, but Ultimately, if I could become a person of prayer, if I can become a person whose primary initial response is to turn to God in the face of opposition, I think we could become people of influence. And so Nehemiah just begins to pray. And the more that Nehemiah prayed and the more that the people began to work, the, the angrier that their enemies got. The enemy that we face in our life, no matter if it's on the physical side of things or even the spiritual side of things, the enemy that we face doesn't want you to succeed. And so the more that you keep pressing on, the more that you keep working hard, the more that you keep pressing to complete the task, finish the job, stay on course, stay on track. The more that you continue to do that, the angrier your enemy becomes. And the more that your enemy is going to fight against you. And so get ready because it's not like you're going to face an initial attack and then you keep doing it and they're going to go away. They may go away for a moment, but they're going to come back stronger and and try to fight you even harder than they have been. Let's jump to verse 13. Therefore, I, Nehemiah, stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their sword, their spears, and their bows. And after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them, talking about the enemy, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. We just sang about that. And fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. Now there's a lot in here that we just read in those few short verses. And I'm going to try not to kind of stay here forever because I feel like that we could. Just for a couple minutes, I want to ask this question. And I want you to ask this question of yourself. What am I fighting for? What am I fighting for? Because here's what Nehemiah understood. Nehemiah understood that if the enemy came against the people, they were not going to fight for a wall. So he stationed them by families. And he said, when the enemy comes, quit working on the wall and turn and fight for your wife, your husband, your sons, your daughters. Fight for your home." Protect what God has entrusted to you. And here's where a lot of us fall short. And I am so guilty of this sometimes. Here's where a lot of us fall short. We fight harder for the job than we do for our family. We fight harder for the project than we do as a parent. We fight harder for the wall than we do for our wife. Nehemiah understood that the wall could come down again and be rebuilt. But if something happens to our families, we're done. What are you fighting for? What am I fighting for? Am I fighting for something that will last? Am I fighting for the role that I play that's unique to me? Or am I fighting for something that, heaven forbid, something should happen to me? They're going to replace me within a week. 30 days at most. I mean, I won't be cold yet and somebody's going to be looking through some new resumes. Am I fighting for that? Or am I fighting to the roles that are unique to me? Nehemiah understood that. So he stationed them by family. And he said, listen, when the enemy comes, when you hear them coming, put down the tools, pick up your weapons, and fight for your family." What are you fighting for? Now, I'm going to try to hit quickly a lot of different groups of people. If you are a married couple in the room, your marriage is under attack. Whether you feel it, whether you know it, whether you've experienced it, and this is not to scare you at all. Just know that the enemy wants to destroy your marriage. Some of you have experienced the pain of that in a very real way. Your marriage is under attack, not just because of who you are, but because the institution of marriage plays a spiritual role. The book of Ephesians tells us that the relationship between a husband and a wife is symbolic of the relationship between Christ and the church. And so where healthy marriages exist, it shows the world what they should look for as the bride of Christ towards her bride. Marriages are under attack. And I've had the opportunity to to counsel Folks that have their marriages in disarray, maybe they're, they're fighting for it, maybe there's been a bad decision, maybe there's been a, a really tough issue, some kind of breakdown in communication, maybe something to violate the covenant of marriage. And some of my initial conversation with, with that couple or with one or the other of, of, of the, the, the parties involved always starts with some question centered around this idea Do you want to stay married? Because ultimately, that's where it begins. Do you want to be married to that person? If you don't, then when it gets hard, you're going to get out. Marriage is not easy. Sometimes it's more difficult than it even has to be because there are flawed human beings that make up every marriage on earth. Do you want to stay married? Because let me just tell you my position is, heaven forbid you ever come to me for any type of marital counseling, I will tell you right now what my position is. Your marriage is worth fighting for. And here's the problem. Sometimes we hang out with the wrong people and they have experienced the pain of divorce and broken marriage and they will assure you that it's not as bad as you envision it to be. Or they will assure you that what's happened in your marriage is worthy of you walking away. And maybe it is because there are definitely definitely things that happen that warrant divorce. And I'm not saying that you should never, ever, ever get out of a marriage. But I am saying that as much as it's up to you I think you should fight for your marriage. Because I think that your marriage is more than just about you and your spouse. It represents something eternal. And it is a representation for those around you and those coming after you that your marriage is larger than just you. And if you've ever experienced the pain of divorce or brokenness, I am so sorry. And I don't have all the answers and I can't explain why it happened. And I am so sorry. And if I could change it, I would. But from this point forward, whether you're remarried or whether that's coming at some point in your future, I would say to you, fight for your marriage. Fight for your marriage. I want you to throw this picture up here, Daryl. I'm married to a good woman. Now, somebody said that this colored picture over here looks like Beauty and the Beast. Um, I can actually see that a little bit. It kind of does look like the lion walking there next to her, whatever that guy's the beast walking next to Belle there. But I've lost a little weight since then, so I'm hoping that wouldn't be the reality today. I'm married to a good woman. But here's what we do, and we don't have a perfect marriage by any stretch. We're we're real and human, and I said something dumb last night, and I tweeted it because I'm also dumb and wanted to relive that. But she said when we were in the kitchen, she was making cupcakes for our son Branson's birthday today. She said, we were joking, it was totally lighthearted. She said, "I I don't even remember what I said. I was saying something about something that maybe she needed to do, right, which is always a mistake. And so she said to me, in a really joking manner, she said, thank God I don't work for you. Because if I worked for you, I would have to come into your office and be like, oh, wait, listen here, buddy. At which point, have you ever had something come out of your mouth and you wish you could just suck it right back in? At which point I responded, in what I thought was a joking manner, is that because you have a problem with authority? Now, because she's a good woman, she laughed at me. I know other women who would have stabbed their husband. They we were in the kitchen, there were knobs everywhere. She laughed at me. I even started writing out the tweet, and she said it was okay for me to do that. But I just hashtagged that one dumb, because that's dumb. Here's what we do. Here's what we talk about. When when I tell her I love her, her, but she tells me she loves me, and when we talk about our future, we we talk about this phrase right here, 75 years. We're we're aiming for 75 years. Now, 75 years from now, we may, may both be dead, right? And she'll be mad that I just said that. Seventy-five years from now, she'll be in prime health and I will not be, all right? I'm, I'm sure that's how this will happen. But our goal is to fight for this. Our goal is to make sure that for our kids and their kids and their kids and anyone that is in our sphere of influence, that the way that I treat her and the way that she treats me is more than just the way Jeremy and Corey treat one another, but it is a representation of the way that Christ loves the church and the church loves Christ, I would say to you, if you are married in the room, fight for your marriage. Throw so this next picture up, Daryl. I've got three sons, and this was last week in Snowpocalypse, when we decided we were going to go to the batting cages, because Saturday, right after Snowpocalypse, was um, baseball tryouts. And uh, so, Cooper there, the tallest one, is nine, and Branson in the middle turned seven today, and Tucker who I don't know if he's throwing an imaginary baseball or making a bear face, but he, um, he's four and a half, and, uh, and my three sons play baseball. And yesterday I spent from like early in the morning until middle of the afternoon at the baseball field because I, I'm a coach for all three of these boys. Because I love baseball, but more than loving baseball, I love these three boys. And then last night, throw this up here, Daryl. This is another picture. Last night, I took my daughter, Kinley to the daddy-daughter date at Chick-fil-A. And yes, she is wearing fake pearls, and she does have a purse. And in that purse, I kid you not, was a microphone and a handy-many screwdriver. I don't know why. And she has on glittery shoes, and she has on a headband that in the car on the way there fell off. And I tried to put it on, and it made her look like she had an Afro, so we didn't wear it the rest of the night. Daddy did not dress her. And so I spent the day at the baseball field, and then last night I took my daughter on a date. And I did that not because I love Chick-fil-A, though I do. It's because I love that girl. And parents, you understand this. And for some of you, it may be easier to fight for your kids than it is to fight for your marriage. But fight for your kids. You know what I said to that little girl coming home last night after Chick-fil-A? She's two. She had no clue what I was saying. I asked her during the day if she wanted to go on a date with Daddy that night, and she was like, no, no. she didn't know what a date was it just sounded like we were leaving mommy and she didn't want to do that But I said to that little girl in the car on the way back to our house I said Kenley do you know who the first man ever to love you was she said who I said Jesus I said you know who the second man ever to love you was she said who I said daddy and I said no matter who any other man that ever loves you is those two will always love you and at two years old, she has no clue what I said. But I'm going to tell her that so much that it makes it difficult for any guy ever to gain her heart. <laughs> Not because I don't like them, but because I love her. I want every girl that tries to get the attention of my three boys to know that they got to love the Lord before they try to love them boys. Because I want them to see the example of their mother, how she loves me and how I love her, and I want them to know how to treat their. Wife. I'm telling you, listen, here's the deal. I'm saying I want to fight for my kids. I'm, I don't care if the wall falls down again. If the enemy comes calling, I want to fight for my family. And some of us are so busy building the wall that we've forgotten to fight. The enemy's coming. He wants to kill and destroy your family. He wants to destroy your kids. And I would say to you, if you are mom and dad in this room, whether you birthed them or not, that God has entrusted them to you so that you could fight for them, not fight with them. doesn't mean it's perfect. My kids are not perfect. I promise you. There are moments that I want to fight with them, right? But it's my responsibility along with Corey to... The discipline and shape, right? Not to just suppress bad behavior, but to help create good behavior. Not to protect my image and what the people in the restaurant will think about me if I do something, but to make sure that as my kids grow up, they know how to act responsibly. Even beyond that, even beyond just creating good kids. I want to help shape and mold hearts that love. Parents, soapbox, tune me out if you want to. Keep your kids in church. But don't excuse yourself from being the primary discipler of your kids. In one or two hours a week, the church cannot replace. The hundred plus hours that you spend with your children every week. And have the opportunity to pour the love of Christ into their hearts. Fight for the soul of your children. It's worth it. Now, if you would say today, I was, I am a parent, but my kids don't live at home. I would just encourage you, as one who doesn't live in the home of my parents anymore. Your role has changed, but your relationship has not. You may not be disciplinarian dad anymore. You may not be ballerina coach, if they even have coaches. I have no idea. Mom, you may not be taking them to Chick-fil-A at night or hanging out at the baseball field to watch them learn how to hit a curveball. But you're still dad. You're still mom. Stay close. As close as you possibly can. And they may push you away with different seasons of time, but stay as close as they'll let you. Be a prayer warrior on their behalf when they don't even know it. Be the financial provision of their dreams when they can't afford it if possible. Be the pancake maker on Christmas morning if that's what it takes to get them to your house. Let the Easter eggs be hidden in your yard. Call them. Receive their collect calls if they even have those anymore. Stay as close as they'll let you invest in your kids. You never grow out of being able to do that. Now if you would say to me today, Jeremy, I'm... All this sounds great. Not married. Single. Of any age. Never been married, maybe. Don't have kids. Maybe I'm married, we don't have kids yet. This sounds awesome. Who am I fighting for? I would say in this story you're fighting for your future family. I would say that you're not exempt from this fight because I would say that the enemy wants to destroy you too. And he wants to destroy you because he knows if he can get you now, he doesn't have to worry about what your future will look like and how incredible that story might play out. And so he's trying now to attack you and to cause you to compromise yourself and lose any sense of purity that you have So that later, there's a lack of intimacy. And so what I would say to you is fight for yourself and for your future family. I would say begin now praying for the children that you don't have yet. I would say if you don't do it already but you're single, to pray for your future spouse. And pray that God would do one of two things, probably both. That God would send into your path the person that you need to continue to grow in Him... That God would continue to make you the person that they need to continue to grow. You are not exempt from this fight. Fight for yourself and for your future family. You can go and build all of the walls that you want to. But they will not last. But family, relationship, community. That's what lasts. Nehemiah understood that nobody's going to fight for a wall, but we'll fight for family. We'll fight for people that God has entrusted to us. And that's what I would say to you today. Fight for your family. Fight for your future family. Let me just say this one last time to those that are single in the room. Guys, treat girls the way that I want someone to treat my daughter. Girls, don't let anybody treat you less than what you're worth. Know how valuable you are. Each of us, of any age, is a child of God first. Know what you're worth. Fight for your family. Fight for yourself and fight for your future. Let's finish this story up. Verse 16. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears and shields and bows and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. And wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. A couple of questions not going to be on the screen, just some things for you to consider today. Who's fighting for you? Who are you fighting for? Nehemiah positioned not just in families, but he said, listen, I want half of you to work while half of you guard, protect. Who's got your back? Who's fighting for you while you work? Who's working for you so that you can fight? Are you in community? Are you in relationship with anybody that's Helping to to allow for both of those things to happen. That we're about the purposes of God, the plans of God. We're building the wall that God sent us to build in whatever capacity, whatever context that that looks like for you. But in doing so, we are not forsaking the call to fight. Who's fighting for you and who are you fighting for? And if you can't answer that question, I think it's time to reevaluate where you put your energy. Where you align yourself relationally. We need community. We were created to be in relationship. And so if you don't have that, I encourage you to pray. Beginning right now, beginning today. God, send people into my life who I can fight for and who will fight for me. No matter your stage of life, no matter your age of life, 82% of people that attend church regularly consider themselves to be lonely. One of the saddest statistics I've ever heard. Because the body of Christ, the gathering, the assembling of the people of God should not be a place where we sit with one another, among one another, in the same place and wish that there was somebody that knew who we were. Wish that there was somebody who was invested in us and who would fight for us. Who we could fight for. Who are you fighting for? Who's fighting for you? In this community of faith... The band to come in this community, faith in this body of people. Whether you're a searching soul who hasn't really figured out what you're looking for in life, and you're not even sure if this is a place you want to belong, somebody that knows, "Hey, I am committed to following after Jesus Christ with everything that I are and, I want, uh, and uh, everything that I am, and I want to do that here." No matter what, where you fall in that continuum, this is a place that you can find community. You can find relationships. We believe in fighting for families. Today, our grade schoolers and preschoolers, they've got a Pirates and Princess party. Just stand in the lobby in a little while. You're going to see some of the cutest things you've ever seen in your whole life. Why would we do a Pirates and Princess party? If We want to fill those rooms with kids. Thinking that today is about Pirates and Princesses and cupcakes and juice and a $10 gift card to Chick-fil-A. But really what it's about is at some point in that day saying, Jesus loves you. He loved you first. He'll always love you. Helping them to grow in the knowledge of who he is. We gather, we turn a school into a worship space. We do that so that you have a place where you can come and belong. Not so that you can sit and stare at the stage for an hour. We want you to invest in one another. We want you to create relationships with one another and find relationships that exist here. We've got life groups that are launching. You can go out and find all the information. But I encourage you to do that because what people, a lot of people that have been in life groups, whether in this church or others, these smaller group environments that meet outside of this building various times throughout the week or month, what they find is that, wow, there are people like me. And they find that what Nehemiah said to the people actually happens that when the enemy comes and someone blows the horn and says hey there's trouble those people came running and they surround one another and they protect one another and they fight for one another and some of you have walked those roads you've had friends or family members or you yourself you've been sick you've had a huge prayer need and you've told your life group or you've told people in this body you've told people on your serving team and what do they do? man they just ran to you it really does exist here And if we've ever dropped the ball in that, it wasn't intentional. We just messed up. Maybe we didn't hear the horn. We didn't know it was blasting. We didn't know where it was at. But I promise you, our heart's desire is to rush to where the enemy's fighting against one of us. So there's there's a call. A call to fight. A call to stand against opposition and to fight for what matters most and I said it earlier in a, in a roundabout way but listen don't waste your efforts fighting for a role that is not unique to you you know the unique roles that I have in life as much as I love all the roles that I play it is not the head coach of the triple A seven and eight year old national baseball team it's not if I were to get sick and be sick for three months they're going to raise the assistant coach up It's not going to be quite as good. But they're going to raise him up. Right? I know the assistant coach. He would say the same thing. He's our children's pastor. Um, A unique role that I don't have, as much as I love it, as much as I live for it, as much as it consumes my thought and my mind, is not the campus pastor of Mount Perry, North Canton campus. You know what my unique roles are? Husband to that woman father to the four kids that you saw on that screen at this stage of my life that's pretty much it obviously son to my parents and all those things but the roles that are unique to me husband, father and I believe that is where I'm called to spend my best energy fighting off the enemy is to protect her those four kids and the sanctity of our home you're called to the same thing, no matter your age, no matter your stage, no matter your context, no matter the makeup of your family. If it's just you, or like me, there's a thousand people in your house. Sometimes, God has called you to fight for your family because the enemy wants to destroy you. Fighting against your family is actually fighting against your future, and God is the holder of your future. The enemy wants to destroy that future. So when you fight, know that you're fighting more than just what you see. You're fighting so much about what is to come. I have no idea what those three boys and that little girl will become. Who they'll become. What they'll do. I don't know what 40 years of marriage will look like, but some of you do. And there are people like you that I need to invest in people like us. If you're not sure where you're supposed to fight, I can tell you right now, you find somebody that's coming after you and you invite them to lunch, you invite them to dinner, you stand and talk to them in the lobby and you say, hey, I just, no questions asked, no strings attached, I just, I just want to be friends. I, I just want you to know over the course of whatever relationship this is, what it takes to get to where I'm at. I don't have all the answers. I've made a lot of mistakes. I want to try to help you avoid those mistakes. You see a young family that's coming after you. There are a couple stages behind where you're at. Encourage them. Invest in them. Love them. You know what it's like to be single and not wanting to be single? Invest in that person because you have a story that will invest in their story. You know what it's like to be married and want to have children but don't have children yet? Invest in that couple. You've walked that road. You know Fight for them. Fight against and help them fight against the discouragement that they may be facing. You made some mistakes in high school or college or maybe middle school. Find that high school or college or middle school student that's coming after you and invest in them. Pour into them. Help them see the road that they're walking and how to avoid the mistakes that you didn't avoid. Fight for their future when they don't even know what their future looks like. We have been called to fight. I want you to stand. I don't want this to be a passive prayer. I feel the need for us to aggressively, passionately, even in a somber moment, to to stand in acknowledgement of our call to fight. And I'm just going to pray. But I'm going to pray a general prayer. And I'm asking you to pray a specific prayer. I'm asking you as we pray over the next couple minutes, even if it's in a whisper, that you would call on the names of the people that you're fighting for. It may be a long prayer, I may not give you enough time, or it may be short. And I want you to ask the Lord to help you to fight for, fill in the blank, with every name that you've got. And then if there's a void in your life, you don't feel like maybe there's enough people or the right people fighting for you, or you're looking for somebody to come into your life, just ask God for that. God, give me someone to fight for. Give give me someone who will fight for me. And pray very specifically for those needs. As I pray for us as a congregation, God, I thank you that you call us to fight. As a somewhat passive person, I I understand that that may not be a comfort for everybody in this room. That analogy may not stick. It may not resonate. But God, I believe you've called us to fight, to fight for our families, to fight for our future. So now, God, I pray for every person in this room who's standing. God, we're not sitting passively and maybe somebody tuned us out a long time ago and that's okay. But in this moment, we're just going to acknowledge that you've entrusted some people to us to fight for. So now, God, I fight. I commit to fight for Corey, for Cooper, for Branson and for Tucker and for Kenley. God, help me to be the man of God to lead my house. Help me with integrity and courage to be a person of influence, not because of any position, but because of the unique role that I play in their lives, that I would love them as you love the church, that I would model for them what it means to live for you and to follow after you with everything that I am. God, I pray for every person in this room to be able to pray a prayer like that, even if they've done it a thousand times before or if this is the craziest thing they've ever heard. They've never prayed like this. God, just let us as we pursue you to know that we're not fighting for ourselves only. We're not fighting on our own. We're fighting for others. We're protecting others. We're fighting for our future. Let us not compromise anything about who we are and ultimately compromise the family and the folks that you've entrusted to us. I thank you for that. God, let us fight for marriage. Let us fight for our kids. Let us fight for our future spouses, our future children, for those that maybe not at that stage right now. Let us fight for the kids that don't live in our home anymore. And whatever our circumstance, whatever our stage or place of life, God, let us understand that we are called by you to community and to fight for those that you've entrusted to us. We thank you for that. We commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray.